Welcome back to Rock Band's podcast, where I talk about the history of rock and roll, band by band. I'm your host, Jonathan Maliberti. No real housekeeping today. Just keep that question that I asked you all last week in mind about the Beatles' solo careers and where you want me to stop the history of the Beatles. All right, we've got a lot of ground to cover today on Beatles Part 4, so I want to get to it. Just don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. Follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast. And share us on social media with your rock and roll loving friends and family. You all have been storying and posting when a new episode drops, so it's been really helpful and awesome. So thank you all so much. Okay, here we go with Beatles Part 4. The Beatles had just had some pretty big years. In 1962, Ringo Starr joined the band and they released their first single. In 1963, they became number one recording artists and released two full-length albums. In 64, they took America by storm and ushered in the British invasion after they played on Ed Sullivan. They even discovered marijuana that year. They were the biggest band in the world, and they had worldwide fame that only American presidents, the Queen of England, or Soviet premiers understood. But somehow, in 1965, they would continue to exceed all expectations, and it would end up being one of their most important years, musically and for their impact. To follow up their mega-year in 1964, Brian Epstein had signed the band up to shoot another film with an accompanying studio album. The band was really dragging their feet at the prospect of having to shoot another film. They didn't want to act, and they especially didn't want to waste what could have been a bit of free time on a movie set. A Hard Day's Night had been so successful, though, that this movie received a much higher budget, meaning they could shoot it in color, add more characters, special effects, and film in more exotic places. The band chose to shoot a large part of the film in the Bahamas, not out of necessity for the plot, but really because if they had to shoot a film, they wanted to at least be on vacation when they were doing it. The movie featured a lot more characters, but it had no real direction. The filming was also hindered by all four of the band members' new obsession with marijuana. Instead of remembering their lines and taking the filming seriously like they had during A Hard Day's Night, they'd just be hanging around, giggling, and unable to get through takes without laughing. Years later, Ringo Starr recalled how silly and unproductive the filming of the movie was. Quote, A hell of a lot of pot was being smoked while we were making the film. It was great. That helped make it a lot of fun. If you look at pictures of us, you can see a lot of red-eyed shots. They were red from the dope we were smoking. Director Dick Lester knew that very little would get done after lunch. In the afternoon, we very seldom got past the first line of the script. We were in such hysterics that no one could do anything. Unquote. The film was released in the summer of 1965, and they called it Help. Though the movie was successful, and its premiere was attended by Princess Margaret, the Beatles didn't want to do that type of stuff anymore. The show-busy nature of making a film about pop stars just didn't really fit into their personalities anymore. They also got kind of sick and tired of writing the same style of songs. The album that went along with the film, also titled Help, was solid but very much a transitional album for them. They wanted to move away from the mold of their previous albums, but lyrically, Help is overall pretty similar to their early work. Most of the content is your typical Beatles boy-girl love songs, not exactly a shocking departure. Musically, though, you can tell that the Beatles are definitely experimenting more and trying little by little to break out of the mop-top suit-wearing love song mold. The title track, Help, 
is one of the album's finest. John was the primary writer and lead vocalist on the song, but Paul adds a remarkable harmony. John actually said in 1980 that help was actually a cry for help over the craziness of Beatlemania. Take It to Ride was more of a Lennon-McCartney collaboration. They released the song as a single, which was kind of a risk, since Ticket to Ride was a slow, heavy drone of a song. Usually pop songs were upbeat and fast. Ringo plays an effective and unusual drum part, and George comes in again with a nice jangly guitar riff. John's You've Got to Hide Your Love Away and Paul's I've Just Seen a Face were two songs on the album that really showcased the band's fascination with Dylan at the time. Help was also the first album since 1963 to feature a George Harrison composition. George wrote two songs that made it onto the album, You Like Me Too Much and I Need You. Of the two, I Need You is a stronger song, with George employing a volume pedal to get the swelling sound on his guitar riff. Lyrically and musically, both of these songs feel like they could have been on A Hard Day's Night or even Beatles for Sale, but George was slowly adding songs to the band's repertoire that were worthy of inclusion. Arguably the best song on Help, though, had nothing to do with John, George, or Ringo. Paul woke up in the early morning of some day in 1963 or 64 with a melody playing in his head. He quickly ran to the piano and found some chords to work out the tune, although it came to him so easily that Paul just assumed that the song already existed. He just couldn't put his finger on what it was. In the coming weeks and months, Paul couldn't match the melody with any other songs. Even though he kept asking his friends, bandmates, and George Martin if they were absolutely certain that the song didn't already exist. He kept chipping away at the song, and he started to love it so much that he was actually kind of scared to put lyrics to it for fear of not doing the song justice. So John and Paul decided to keep the song under a silly working title called Scrambled Eggs, so they didn't distract themselves with any lyrics that they didn't like. One day, the other three Beatles got to the studio to find Paul playing the completed song to George Martin. What was once a song that began with the words, Scrambled Eggs, Oh My Baby How I Love Your Legs, was now a beautiful song that started with Yesterday, All My Troubles Seem So Far Away. The rest of the guys listened intently and agreed that there was nothing that they could do that would add to the song and make it better. George Martin suggested adding a tasteful string arrangement, which actually ended up on the record, but no other Beatle other than Paul appears on the record. Yesterday is a beautiful, subtle, and even heart-wrenching song, and it's now the most widely covered song in history. Along with Help and Ticket to Ride, Yesterday became a number one hit in 1965. In the summer of 1965, the Beatles changed what it meant to be a rock and roll band yet again. Usually bands, if they were lucky, would play 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 seat theaters, and that was the mark of a really successful career in the music industry. But the promoters of the Beatles' Carnegie Hall shows in 1964 noticed that the demand was so high, they could have sold out the theater for weeks. With this in mind, Brian Epstein agreed to have the Beatles perform a concert at the 55,000-seat Shea Stadium, home of the New York Mets. Artists like the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, U2, Michael Jackson, all made a living off playing giant sports stadiums in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. I mean, even today, practically every concert I've ever been to has been at, 
you know, a football stadium or Fenway Park or the TD Garden. But again, this is going to be a recurring theme. This simply wasn't the case back then. You played theaters. You know, the Beatles at Shea Stadium was kind of the first big show that would kick off a revolution in big venue musical performances. The Beatles showed up for their gig at Shea Stadium with a new look, beige jackets. There wasn't an empty seat in the house, and their friend Ed Sullivan introduced them to the ocean of screaming fans. It was still early days, so the rock and roll stadium show had not been perfected. They had to walk out a few hundred yards across the baseball diamond as the audience was losing their minds, with Ed Sullivan awkwardly saying, here they come, here they come, as they hurried towards the stage. The sound was louder than at most Beatles shows, but it was still pretty bad. The guys used 100-watt amps, which were piped through the baseball announcer's PA system. There was no jumbotron, so it honestly could have been four completely random guys, and most people wouldn't have been able to see or hear the difference. I mean, the scene was pretty hectic, too. People were running onto the field, getting tackled by policemen, and the Beatles only played for like 25 minutes. But despite the hectic, kind of hurried scene of this prehistoric stadium show, John, Paul, George, and Ringo had a great time playing. It was truly a rush for them, which at this point, it didn't happen very often when they played in front of the audience to have such an adrenaline rush. Overall, Shea Stadium was a definite high point in their 1965 U.S. tour. The Beatles were getting sick of touring. It was hectic and even dangerous given their limited security. Most importantly, they knew that it didn't matter what they played. Most of the time, they couldn't even hear themselves, so there was no way the audience could hear them. Moreover, a lot of their best songs were getting harder to play live, and they were sick of their early material. I mean, they were still closing shows with Twist and Shout and Long Tall Sally. They were starting to feel like their time on the road was more trouble than it was worth. Another high point on the tour was their meeting with Elvis Presley, around the time of Shea Stadium. Elvis was their number one hero, and they were thrilled and nervous to meet him. Elvis didn't really feel the same way about the Beatles, though. They had taken his spot as the number one musical act in the world, and were passing him by leaps and bounds. In 1965, the Beatles had five number one hits in the United States. The same year, Elvis only achieved one top ten. This meeting was short, amicable, and it gave the Beatles a story to tell for the rest of their lives. I mean, they still talk about how the first time they saw a remote control that could change the channels on a television, it was in Elvis's hands as he was flipping through the channels. With Shea Stadium and meeting Elvis behind them, John Lennon and George Harrison couldn't wait to get to California, so they could show Ringo something that they'd brought along with them from the UK, a drug that they'd discovered a few months before called LSD. LSD, or acid, is a hallucinogenic drug that has a profound impact on one's thoughts, awareness of one's surrounding, and perception of time and space, and in 65, LSD was still really uncommon. In the spring of 1965, though, John, Cynthia, George, and Patty were invited to their friend and dentist's house, John Riley. Now, obviously it's a little weird to hang out with your dentist, but Riley was kind of a celebrity dentist who was involved in the London social scene, so it was cool. Cynthia had noticed when they walked in that there were six sugar cubes lined up on, in a row on the table. It was weird, but she quickly moved on. They had a perfectly pleasant dinner with Riley and his girlfriend. They ate good food, had more than enough to drink, 
But as the night went on, John and George were trying to find a way to leave. They had plans to meet Ringo at a nightclub in London to see a new band with their old Hamburg pal, Klaus Vorman, and they didn't want to miss the set. Riley and his girlfriend kept stalling, when finally John said clearly that they had to leave. Riley's girlfriend pleaded with George, John, Patty, and Cynthia to stay for just a cup of coffee, and they agreed, though they got the vibe that maybe their dentist friend wanted to bring things into the bedroom, which they were definitely not cool with. After the coffee was gone, the couples insisted yet again on leaving, fearing they'd miss the performance of their friend. That's when they were told by John Riley that they couldn't leave because he'd dosed them all with LSD. The couple had laced those sugar cubes with LSD and slipped it into the Beatles' coffees without their knowledge. John was furious. He had read about LSD in Playboy and got angry as he grabbed his things and hurriedly tried to leave. George, Patty, and Cynthia hadn't even heard of it before, so they really had no idea what was going on. It was at this time that it started to kick in, so Riley was insisting that he drive them to the nightclub. They all flatly refused his offer, and now the drug was really beginning to take effect, as they were thoroughly creeped out by this dentist and his advances. They all piled into George and Patty's Mini Cooper and began driving to downtown London. Patty Boyd recalled the early moments of the trip, quote, All the way, the car felt smaller and smaller, and by the time we arrived, we were completely out of it. People kept recognizing George and coming up to him. They were moving in and out of focus. They looked like animals. We clung to each other, feeling surreal, unquote. When the group got to the club, they were profoundly disoriented. They would switch from hysterical laughter to sobriety to terror and fear. They thought the elevator taking them up to the nightclub on the top floor was on fire because it had a bright red light in it, and screamed in horror when the doors opened at the nightclub. John Lennon said, quote, we were just insane. We were out of our heads, unquote. On their way to the club, they were so relieved to find their friend Ringo, who was hanging with Mick Jagger and his girlfriend. They sat down at a table that was moving around like a snake, and they told him how they'd been drugged by their dentist. After a couple hours at the nightclub, the four wanted to go home. So they climbed into George's Mini Cooper, probably not the safest move, and they inched their way back to George's house in Escher, driving extremely slowly. Back at George's house, the couple continued to trip for hours. Cynthia and Patty had pretty unpleasant experiences overall, but John and George couldn't wait to repeat their experiment. George had a deep spiritual awakening that changed him in a profound way. George said of the experience, quote, I felt a very concentrated feeling of the best feeling I'd ever had in my whole life. It was fantastic. I felt in love, not with anything or anybody in particular, but with everything. It was as if I had never tasted, talked, seen, thought, or heard properly before. For the first time in my whole life, I wasn't conscious of ego. It was an awakening and the realization that the important thing in life is to ask, who am I? Where am I going? And where have I been? All the other bullshit was just bullshit, unquote. That first acid trip also changed John and George's relationship considerably. George said that he and John, quote, saw past each other. And after taking acid, we had a very different relationship. That I was younger or smaller was no longer of any kind of embarrassment with John. He and I spent a lot of time together, and from then on, I felt closer to him than all the others. Just by the look in his eyes, I felt we were connected, unquote. LSD is, of course, a psychedelic drug that would eventually become so ubiquitous in the 1960s that it would fundamentally alter much of Western culture, society, and not to mention how much of an impact it had on the Beatles and other bands' music. After John and George's trip, they couldn't wait to tell Paul and Ringo, 
and of course repeat their experiment. Paul refused at first, saying later, quote, I was really frightened of that kind of stuff because it's what you're taught when you're young. Hey, watch out for them devil drugs. So when acid came around, we'd heard that you're never the same. It alters your life and you never think the same again. And I think John was rather excited by that prospect. I was rather frightened by that prospect. I thought, just what I need, some funny little thing where I can never get back home again, unquote. Ringo, on the other hand, was totally game and agreed to take it in California after the Beatles' Shea Stadium appearance. Ringo first tripped with some members of the American band The Birds, like Roger McGuinn and David Crosby, as well as the actor Peter Fonda. This event was actually the inspiration for their song, She Said, She Said, which I'll get into next episode. Two camps started to form in the band during this period. On one hand, you had John, George, and Ringo, who were starting to get fed up with touring and wanted to start experimenting with acid more. And on the other hand, you had Paul, who felt a responsibility to keep touring and kind of disapproved of his new friend's fascination with psychedelics. The Beatles were still the number one musical act in 1965, but they were no longer the only game in town, as they had been through 64. Their success created an opening for tons of other bands and artists to start becoming really popular. The Rolling Stones were their biggest threat in the UK. Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were really coming into their own as songwriters. The success of the Beatles and their darling image in the media left an opening for the Stones to be branded as the bad boys. They also had an enormous hit that year with I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Keith Richard wrote that fuzzy, tough, hard-hitting riff. The Beatles didn't take the Stones too seriously as competitors, though. For one, they were really good friends with the Stones, and John and Paul had a good five years of songwriting experience on Mick and Keith, who were still very much learning the ropes. So the rivalry between the bands was pretty one-sided and mainly a creation of rock journalists at the time. The Beatles were pretty competitive with a few American artists, though. Their primary rivalry was with the Beach Boys. The Beach Boys were branded as an American Beatles, and they'd been together just as long as John, Paul, George, and Ringo. They also had a stronger vocal section, and though once boxed in as kind of corny surf music, the Beach Boys were really branching out musically, and their latest single, California Girls, was so good and innovative that it really gave the Fab Four a run for their money. Another California band, The Birds, were becoming really popular. Though still coming into their own as composers, they were scoring hit after hit, and their folk rock sound was really resonating with a lot in the American audience. Finally, the Beatles were competing with Bob Dylan, who had suddenly, in 1965, left folk behind and became a rock and roller. His first rock album, Highway 61 Revisited, added serious lyrics to rock and roll music, with songs like Like a Rolling Stone, Subterranean Homesick Blues, and Queen Jane approximately, the new Dylan made rock and roll an art form with philosophical deep lyrics, not just music that was meant to be danced to. This was the environment that the Beatles were in when they decided that their next album had to be the best piece of work that they'd ever made. No more filler tracks, no more mindless pop. In the fall of 1965, the Beatles started working on their first masterpiece. Instead of carving out a few days here and there to record some songs for an album, the Beatles set aside four weeks to record their sixth full-length album, called Rubber Soul. The name was a play off of the expression directed towards many rock and rollers at the time, Plastic Soul. 
Plastic Soul was kind of a derogatory way of describing music that was inspired by African-American music like soul and blues, but played by white artists without the same level of authenticity. McCartney came up with Rubber Soul as a way of saying that the Beatles' Plastic Soul was stronger than anyone else's. The first two songs worked out for Rubber Soul were two non-album singles, John's Day Tripper and Paul's We Can Work It Out. Day Tripper was notable for its awesome guitar riff, which was created to one-up the Stones' satisfaction riff, but also a pretty clear reference to sex and drugs, which was definitely a first for the Beatles' lyrics at the time. We Can Work It Out was also a really strong song, with an awesome melody, so instead of choosing an A-side and a B-side for the single, John and Paul decided that they wanted to release these, these two singles as a double A-side single, and it went to number one. Now, notice how I'm starting to say that this was a Paul song and that was a John song. While every j- song John and Paul wrote was credited to Lennon-McCartney, it's around this period that they started to write apart from each other. Instead of hanging out for a week and writing the album, they were still partners, but one of them would bring a song to the studio and the other one would help them fine-tune it. There were fewer and fewer songs that were pure 50-50 down-the-middle Lennon-McCartney collaborations. John and Paul had very different creative processes, too. Paul was all about melody. He would come up with a tune, either on the guitar, piano, singing. He would then add chords to it, and then when all of that was finished, when the music was done and the melody was strong, he'd write the lyrics. John wasn't so structured. He could find a riff, think of a lyric, or come across a chord progression on the guitar or piano and just fill in the spaces until he had a song. They also had much different attitudes about seeking input or collaborating with George and Ringo. John was actually really insecure as a songwriter. He never thought what he wrote was any good. So he'd ask George Martin, is this okay or can we do anything with this? John really sought the input from Paul, George, and Ringo and George Martin. When George added a guitar solo, hook, or counterpoint, John was usually okay with it. If Ringo thought the song wasn't working, he'd usually decide to scrap it. John left the production to George Martin, the bass playing to Paul, lead guitar playing to George, and drumming to Ringo, while he took his job as a rhythm guitarist and vocalist very seriously. Paul, on the other hand, was much more authoritative with his music. If it was John's song, he was happy to take input on his playing or leave others to do what they wanted, but if it was his song, he could be extremely particular about how things should be played. Paul often would sit at the drums and play Ringo through the song. He'd even grab his guitar and tell George how to play the fills and what to do for the solo. Paul even started playing a lot of lead guitar on his own songs because he would get frustrated when George wouldn't play something the way he wanted or was too slow to realize his vision for the guitar part. This atmosphere in the studio only started in earnest during the Rubber Soul sessions, and while it was annoying at times, the Beatles were still very much a band. An arrangement of songs still very much fell on all four of them relatively equally. Rubber Soul opens with a true Lennon-McCartney collaboration, and each member really did their part to make Drive My Car so good. Paul originally had corny lyrics, I can buy you diamond rings, but John helped him overhaul the words to Baby You Can Drive My Car, a euphemism for sex. The lyrics are witty, and it's an exciting, upbeat song to open the album. Ringo plays an excellent drum part, and George, who was listening to a lot of Otis Redding at the time, plays a pop soul guitar part throughout the tune. Next was Norwegian Wood, which was a John song through and through. Lennon said years later, quote, Norwegian Wood was about an affair I was having. I was very careful and paranoid because I didn't want my wife to know, unquote. 
The song is probably most interesting because of the sitar riff played by George Harrison, who's growing increasingly interested in Indian music. Maybe the most standout track on Rubber Soul is In My Life, which was mainly a Lennon contribution with heavy input from Paul. Now, the song was arguably one of their most innovative to date. The lyrics were slow and melancholic with a beautiful piano solo played by George Martin in the middle. John said of the song, quote, It was the first song I wrote that was consciously about my life. Before, we were just writing songs a la the Everly Brothers or Buddy Holly, pop songs with no more thought to them than that, to create a sound. The words were almost irrelevant. I think this was my first major piece of work, unquote. Nowhere Man was also a standout. It was the best harmony song the Beatles recorded to date, maybe a direct message to their friends in California, the Beach Boys. Lyrically, this was the biggest departure from their earlier work as well. Nowhere Man came to Lennon after a short period of writer's block and had nothing to do with love at all, a first for a Beatles song. The solo was written by Harrison and played simultaneously by John and George on their matching Fender Stratocasters. Paul adds strong pop songs like I'm Looking Through You and You Won't See Me, both probably about his relationship with Jane Asher at the time. He also adds the French-inspired Michel, which was an old party trick he resurrected and made into a fan favorite. Paul would bring his guitar and wear a black turtleneck to John's art school parties in the late 50s and early 60s, and he would pretend to be French. He'd strum his guitar in the corner, singing made-up French words, and talk with a French accent, hoping to get some mysterious and exotic art school girl. He then adapted the song and turned it into the angelic Michel Mabel, added a beautiful finger-plucked guitar part, and really honestly gives you the vibe of being in a French cafe in the 1960s. George Harrison was given two slots for his original compositions on Rubber Soul. The first, Think For Yourself, had some cool effects, but lyrically it was still kind of a Beatles song that belonged in 1964. The second composition, though, If I Needed Someone, was in my opinion the song that turned George Harrison into a respectable pop songwriter. It has a great 12-string riff, awesome Beatles harmonies, and fits in lyrically and stylistically with the rest of Rubber Soul. This was the first Harrison composition that the Beatles thought was good enough to play live. Harrison also gave it to another British band, The Hollies, to release as a single, where it cracked the top 20. John and Paul didn't exactly break their backs helping George with the song in the studio. They still didn't really take him seriously as a composer, so they probably never told him that the song was any good, not because they were being mean, but they were just wrapped up in their own songs, and that's just the way they were back then. Regardless, the song's entry into their live repertoire and appearance on the charts definitely gave George some confidence as a songwriter, and his colleagues and the Beatles definitely took him a little more seriously. John Lennon called Rubber Soul the pot album, and it's true. I mean, the cover, you see their squinty red eyes, the trippy Rubber Soul writing, and it doesn't even say the word the Beatles on the front cover. But Rubber Soul was chock full of great songs. It topped the charts for weeks in the UK and the US, but most importantly, Rubber Soul wasn't just a good pop album that sold a lot of copies. This album was the biggest game changer in pop music since the Beatles played Ed Sullivan, and it proved to the world that these guys weren't just a cute boy band, but serious musicians. Their new sound blended the electric rock and roll of the Beatles with acoustic folk, soul, R&B, and even Eastern music. Their lyrics were no longer just about boy meets girl, but had a more introspective theme to them, like nostalgia, rejection, and loneliness. Perhaps Rubber Soul's most recognizable legacy is how it kicked off the era of the album in rock and roll. 
The album era is an era where artists began to think about making good albums instead of just releasing hit singles. Usually, albums were just a way to resell singles, but Rubber Soul didn't include any of the album's singles, and it didn't have any filler tracks. This meant that the album was meant to be listened to as a complete listening experience. Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys actually said that Rubber Soul was, quote, the first album I listened to where every song was a gas, unquote. Wilson actually wrote Pet Sounds largely out of competition with the Beatles. He wanted to one-up them. He wanted to respond to Rubber Soul with a new album with no filler tracks. The album was also an early adopter of the use of foreign instruments on pop records. Would Brian Jones have played a sitar on the Stones' Paint It Black if he hadn't heard George Harrison play one on the Beatles' Norwegian Wood? An explosion of creativity and innovation and Baroque kind of themes happened in rock and roll after Rubber Soul. After seeing the success of the album, the band had a new sense of purpose with their music. It was no longer just about touring America, topping the charts, or making a lot of money. It was about creating art. They wanted to make music that they would be proud of. The Beatles had a great time making the album, and they felt like Rubber Soul was just the beginning. They were learning the ropes in the studio. They were more confident. They were more innovative. So John, Paul, George, and Ringo couldn't wait to get back in the studio and really make their next album something special. Thank you so much for listening to Rock Band's podcast, Beatles Part 4. You gotta tune in next week. We're gonna talk about my favorite album, Revolver. I think it's one of the greatest albums ever made. Uh, we're gonna talk about the Beatles' decision to stop touring and so much more. So tune in, subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, follow us on Instagram at Rock Band's Podcast, and share us with all of your rock and roll loving friends. Until next week, listen to Rubber Soul and listen to Revolver. <laughs>